Well, this is Missions Month. It is a month of services, uh, Sundays, that we take time from the middle of January to the middle of February to think of missions globally, locally, uh, to remember that Jesus called us to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the world. And we try to remind ourselves that we are a part of that. Missions Month is not just a reminder that there are some people that go do that and we should, we should be happy about that, but it is a reminder that we should realize that God has each called us to make disciples. It's, it's non-negotiable. If the church is not doing that, we're not doing church. This is the great commission given to us. Well, the third Sunday of Missions Month is usually mine, the one I preach on. Uh, it happens that this is usually the Sunday that our youth, our student ministry, is off at winter retreat, and they are there today. They're finishing up their, their last session uh, now, and will be headed home shortly. They've had a good week there. Um, but I love this time, and it happened to be that it just fell perfectly on a text and mark that I'm at after, uh, that follows along in my preaching series. Next week, Jerry Boyle, who is truly one of my mentors, who raised me in the ministry, he will be here. Uh, he flies in late next week, and we'll have him as usual about 9 o'clock. I'll sit on the stage and interview him. Um, I'm already nervous about that, because uh, <laughs> he knows everything about me. Um, but he is a man that poured his life into me. Um, and I can't tell you how grateful I am for him. And I'm very grateful to share him with you next week. Uh, he's a very special man. He is uh, a man that God called to go to places where a lot of people don't go. Very rural areas, ranching and farming people that are very difficult to reach. Um, he has had a very long, successful ministry there. And, uh, and he, trained, he trained this old boy. And, uh, and I'm excited to have him next week. So please, mark your calendars. Come, be a part of that next week. Especially at the 9 o'clock hour as well. Just to hear him as we work through life together. Well, if you are able, please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 13. Stand with me and we will read the Word of God together. Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 13 is our text this morning. And he, that's Jesus, summoned the twelve and began to send them, out into, in, uh, send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no monies in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick and healing them. This is the text, the reading of God's word that we will preach from. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we thank you that you laid out a plan from the foundations of the world to draw all peoples to yourself, all walks of life. 
Your plan was that at the end of the age, at the very end of time, as man stands before you, there would be people from every walk of life, every tongue, tribe, nation, language. You would gather people from these lost worlds, these lost societies, these lost people groups, and you would draw them to yourself. What a marvelous plan, Lord. All before we were even created, you laid that down. And then, Lord, your highest creation, the one that should have worshipped you the greatest, rejected you. And the plan was set into order. The promise of a son who would come, who would crush the head of the enemy. An illustration an Old Testament that would be drawing us towards a cross that was coming. All picturing a coming Son of God who would lay down His life for the sheep. And Lord, then the great commands given. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Make disciples of every nation. Identify them. Baptize them in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Reminding them of all that you had learned. And lo, Lord, you promised you would always be with us. Because this is the fulfillment, Lord, of what you called us to do. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room or hears this sermon, Lord, would be convicted today that we must be engaged in missions. You are the the qualifier, the sender. You, you, You hold all of that. I pray that Riverbend Church, those who make up this local assembly, would be gripped by the glory of Christ, that we may be preachers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. One-on-one, to large groups, whatever you allow us to do, Lord, may we take that. May we put our hands to that plow, Lord, and hold on tightly and see what our great God will do. So encourage us this morning, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The most effective people I know in ministry and have been around would tell you if they were standing here today, and some of them have stood here, uh, would tell you that they were undeserving of the grace of God. They did not deserve what they received. They can't believe that God would, first of all, save them. And then they would tell you they can't believe that he actually lets them do this. I'm one of those. Amazed at it. So we think through some of the men this week that had profound effects on my life and then my own life. There's such contrast because I think it's so easy to say, oh, you preachers or you pastors, you you need to do all this stuff. There's such a diversity within the men that affected me. Um, one of the men is a good friend of Brian Sheely and I's, who's with the Lord now. His name is Steve Fernandez, and he was anything but the classic raised in a Christian home guy. Uh, he was raised in a pagan home uh, that had nothing to do with Christ. He did not know there was a church in the world. He, he was raised isolated from the world and in a drug culture that that is amazing. He. He, tells, he told stories of being at Berkeley University, which we called Berserkly, those of us that lived on the West Coast. Um, there, mocking preachers in the 60s who would stand up in the quad and share the gospel with people, throwing food at them and mocking them. He tells stories of his brother who got saved and tried to show him the Bible, said, threatened that he would kill him 
if he ever showed them again what the Bible had to say. And then set out to show that the Bible was full of lies. And to show his brothers that they were lost in their thinking and, and they were a mess. <laughs> Guess what happened to him? God saved him. And Steve had a tremendous impact on Brian and I and many other people, many people around the world. Nilo, Nilo would give great credit to what Steve had done in his life. Then Jerry, my, my mentor who will be here next week, he's born of a son of a rancher. A farm and ranch, lived out in the country. Um, had a mom that professed faith in Christ and was a godly mom but a very unbalanced home, no spiritual leadership in the home, just a hard-working mentality, good, clean, American living, raising beef, you know, growing hay, doing all those type of things, but no heritage, no, no pastors before him. And yet Jerry got saved, and you'll hear his testimony next week, and, and, and God set him on a journey to preach, very, very different than Steve, uh, almost the extreme opposite of Steve. Then there's plenty of men like me raised in the church. I'm sure I was sitting on the left side the Sunday after my mom was healthy enough to bring me because she played the organ. <laughs> and we sat, all of us, all seven of us sat in a row there and we didn't squirm and we were raised in a, a pretty strict church. Many of my brothers professed Christ and walked aisles. I too, most of them got saved and led to the Lord years later. And so such different diversity that God uses. And so uh, the point of this is that all of us, as we, here we are, very different, coming from different aspects of society and culture, all captured by the glory of Christ. Amazed at who he is and what he's accomplished. And, and, and all of a sudden he takes country boys and city boys and, and, and men that had no heritage at all. He unloosens their tongues and they begin to profess Christ. Three completely different men sent out to preach. Three very crooked sticks that God taught and used to draw straight lines. I love that phrase. Crooked stick that draws straight lines. That's what we do. And when we use the Bible as our text, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do not add to it or take away from it. We crooked lines can draw straight lines right to the Lord Jesus Christ. God saves. We draw the line. Isn't that beautiful? Do you, do you see yourself that way as one undeserving of the grace that you received and yet part of this magnificent commissioning to be one who preaches the gospel. And when I say preaches, please do not put that into this pulpit. We all preach something, don't we? We preach politics. We preach sports. We preach family. We preach all kinds of things. Do you preach the gospel? And that is the challenge. And as we look into our text today, we see Jesus sending out a very diverse group of men. We'll see there's a change in Jesus' ministry. Up to now, Jesus has been doing the teaching. Jesus has been doing the healing. Everything has been centered around the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've battled heartless religious leaders. 
The disciples have watched him cast out demons that had full control of men. Satan holding on to them. Teaching the gospel of God as Mark introduced us to it. And healing people. But now he's sending out, think about these guys, fishermen, laborers, tax collectors, and zealots to go preach the gospel. No trained men. They're obviously not part of the religious establishment. And yet the Lord promised them. Do you remember? He promised them. He said, I will make you what? Fishers of men. And he's doing it. He's doing it in this text. And so Christ is about to multiply the extent of his ministry while preparing men for one of the greatest hours of human history. And and look, the greatest hour is the death of Christ as he took our sins upon him, past, present, and future sins, the sins of the past and the sins of the future, all washed upon him as his father judged him. Now think about this, judged him as though he committed those sins. But you know the next greatest hour is? The birth of the church. After Jesus resurrects, he challenges and commissions these men for the birth of the church. So these men are now, this is their testing ground. This is where they start out. We don't see a tremendous amount of evidence of the ministry from this sending out. But this is where it starts. People who get enough confidence in Christ, not in themselves, to say, let me tell you what I believe. And we see that pictured in this text. Please understand these are not untrained, radical Jesus freaks. They have spent countless hours with the Lord Jesus. Have you spent countless hours with Jesus? Have you been countlessly, countless hours in the Word of God, taught it, trained it? Maybe some of you, like me, raised in Sunday school shortly after you were born. See, what I want to show to you, these are not men that have everything lined up. And certainly we have a seminary. We love to train men. We need to, there is a step of preparation to be sending them out. But he uses men and women all through this gospel encounter that are not polished and perfect. They heard Jesus preach the gospel over and over, just like you and I. They've heard the gospel over and over. But they're also witnesses of a bitter opposition that Jesus faced, right? They've seen that. So now they're going to go out and they're going to rehearse the truth that they know, but they're going to see that opposition as well. And now it seems the Lord desires for them to get a taste of, of the ministry. This text records the, and I want you to listen to this, the great commissioner. We talk about the great commission, but this course, this text records the great commissioner, Jesus Christ, sending out 12 apostles. And though the name apostle is more attached to their, pro, their post-cross ministry, it means simply sent ones. And think about this, they're the first generation of preachers. They're the first generation of preachers. You might be the first generation of one who stands for the gospel. I'm the first generation preacher in my family, there's none before me. But you might be the first generation of a family that preaches the gospel and stands for it. Now, let's look at a couple of truths here this morning. Number one, Jesus is the great commissioner. Look at verse 7 with me. Jesus is the great commissioner. And he, that's Jesus, summoned the twelve, and he began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Well, if Matthew 28, 16 through 20 is the great commission, 
then Jesus must be the great commissioner. And I want to be clear here, the church doesn't truly send. <laughs> well, you go, wait a minute, Scott, you said we need to be a sending church. Yes, it's Jesus who commissions people to go. What we did, even this morning, as we recognized deacons, and you heard me if you were listening when I prayed, Lord, we merely recognize what you have done in these men's life. And that's often what happens when we send missionaries out. We recognize and have done the work with them to understand that it's God who is sending them, God who is calling them, and God who is sending them. And this verse helps us understand that. And yes, it takes evaluation. There's been a lot of people through the years who say, oh, you know, they got emotional, heard a message like this. Uh, let's go to Iraq. <laughs> We're going, whoa, hold on. Let's get you ready. <laughs> let's see if God's calling you. Let's prepare you. There is evaluation for that. But at the same time, we believe it's God stirring in the hearts of missionary. We respond to what God is doing. Now, I really appreciate the setting here. Think about this. Jesus has been rejected by his unbelieving hometown. Do you remember that? He's not welcome in his own hometown. This text correlates with Luke 4. He's preaching there. They tried to chuck him off the edge of the, uh, the cliff there in Nazareth. Um, and so here, this is the setting that's happening. Now Jesus is launching out. He's been rejected by his own family, his own people that he was raised with. And now he's setting out to call on many other Jewish communities and preach the gospel to them. And he's now doubling down. He's taking these 12 men and sending them out in pairs to preach this message. Now notice it says, he summoned the 12 and he began to send them out in pairs. First of all, 12, it's an interesting thing. There's a lot we could go in here, but it possibly reflects the 12 tribes. I, I think there is eschatological view that we understand that the 12 tribes of Israel and, and the role of as the blending of Israel and the church and in times comes, we certainly see some of those things. But here's what I think what he's doing. I think it's a message that is imperative to the nation of Israel. And these men were a symbol, uh, really a symbol of a new spiritual leadership to Israel. A new way of living. They had, they had taken the law and, and, and made it palatable for man to be able to try to keep and to bring themselves to God. And so God is sending out here through Christ 12 men. 12 men to this nation to say, look, we're not coming by pedigree we're not coming because we're part of the religious elite. We're coming because the Messiah is sending us. And they're coming right from their own people. And so I think the Lord is doing this to show Israel that you have not heard the message. You did not understand what I was going to do. I told you I would crush the head of the serpent. Did not tell you that the only way to me was through a perfect law keeping, which they could not do, bringing the message of the gospel. There's also a chronological order when we think about the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. So there's a chronological order as the gospel was presented here. And so these 12 men are sent out. Notice the wording, the sentence structure of this phrase. Begin, he says, he began to send them out. The sentence structure gives the idea that he started staggering them out in a send off over a period of time. You could see this. 
you know, Jesus. We don't know who he matched up with. The text doesn't tell us. But he's matching up these, these disciples, these soon-to-be apostles, and he's sending them out with authority and with the message of the gospel. Notice he sends them out in pairs. I like this. Think about the benefits of pairs. Um, when we started church planning years ago, um, boy, did, I mean, <laughs> we just didn't know a whole lot. We just, well, we had one other family. <laughs> And we go, well, let's plant a church. <laughs> and uh, that's our first church plant was with really one other family. And then the Lord sent us one more. And, and we started our first church just on that in a little community hall. And eventually it led to a building that was no longer being used down 25 miles down the road. And, and then God just started saving people. We started trading elders and so forth. And, and there's a beautiful church there to this day by his glory. But, but we had not even thought about, hey, we should get somebody to go with us. That would have been so nice. <laughs> and the Lord, yeah, he thinks about these. So you see the benefits of, of going out, probably for protection and support. But think of a few other issues. The assurance of clarity. You know, when you have a close brother in the Lord, one of the things I love about working with elders is I don't have it all figured out. I, I know you probably understand that. But it is so nice to sit with a group of men who love the gospel, know the word of God, and we can together flush out truth. We can look at the text and say, what does this teach? How do we fulfill this in there? So there's, it ensures clarity. It strengthens resolve. Believe it or not, sometimes your elders get scared. We get fearful of, of making moves to do something. And, you know, because you, you feel rebuttal. You feel pushback. And, and somebody leaves and all that stuff happens. You know, when you have somebody that puts their arm around you and says, hey, brother, it's okay. We did what God asked us to do. Or, or it says, hey, we need you know, you're a little sharp there. Will you repent of that, right? There's good stuff there that brings that out. It, it, it strengthens resolve to do what's right. Gives encouragement. It blends gifts. You'll notice in our elders and the men that are working towards that, there's a unique blending of gifts that comes. And so Jesus knows this, and he's sending out a, a Peter and a John or, or, or a Peter and a Bartholomew or, or a John and somebody. He's blending them together to, to use their gifts. And I think God does that today. And so we encourage pairing up, serving to, to, together. Notice he gave them authority over unclean spirit. Isn't this interesting? Christ gave the apostles authority to authenticate the message. Now, remember, there's not a complete manual yet. There's not a complete canon. The scriptures are not complete yet. They're not, the Spirit hasn't put them all together, so they have this amazing, um, fully sufficient, lacking nothing word of God yet. And so God is authenticating their message. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. The writer, the writer notes this, and I think it's worthy of going back and looking at this. Hebrews chapter 2. Turn there in your Bibles with me. He's proving that Jesus was not some angel. He's not some uh, just theophany that just appeared and left. He's proving that Jesus is the Son of God. He fully holds all things together. So he, he shares deity, essence, and nature with the Father. And, and he's showing that there are many who have drifted away because they, they thought he was an angel or they give angels authority over things. And that's the context here. Drop into the middle of three. And he says, after it was, uh, after it, after it was at 
the first spoken through the Lord, look at this, it was confirmed to those who heard. God also testifying with them, now look at this, speaking of the apostles here, by signs and wonders and by various miracles, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to this, to his own will. So the text tells us that God willed these men to be endowed with unique, limited, for a short time, gifts to bring the recognition that God had given them authority so people would hear their message. It is a beautiful thing what God has done. It was pre-completion of the scriptures, and and so they had this authority. And so Jesus says, look, you're going to show what you have is unlike what anything else has. Anybody else has. You're going to be able to say people can be free from demonic forces that hold them in bondage or heal them of infirmities that they have. And you say, well, wow, Scott, that's pretty cool. Well, let me, let me chase you a little bit here. We stand now on the most holy, sacred words called the Holy Bible. <laughs> Everything and more of what those apostles were given, we have in this. This contains the message that frees people from the grip of Satan. It's everything they had and more. It has the ability to help somebody understand that they can trust in God to be healed of their infirmities or trust in God that he'll take them through it and have joy in the middle of it. But before this was completed, he gave them authority that the word of God spoken to them, they would understand. I try to help our dear friends that get caught up in some of this to realize how pow- what power God has given us in the word of God. And, and sometimes I'll ask them, is, is God's word not enough? Do you, do you need something beyond that? Is his word not sufficient? And we hold in that hand, I want to encourage you, when you run into people who are struggling, are going through difficult times, you hold within your hand, in, in your memory, the word of God that releases them from Satan's control. You can say, friend, Jesus Christ died for your sins. All that you've ever committed was laid upon him. Put your faith in him. Satan loses the grip of that person at salvation. All done through the word of God. I also think it's a, a, a great point of compassion. We've noted in this series going through the book of Mark that we see Jesus' compassion. Remember the text would say he looked upon them and had compassion? I think it's just Jesus showing compassion through those who are endowed with his word. Those who preach and care for the flock, you have God's word, but what comes with God's word is great compassion. When you see somebody hurting, God's word should drive us to want to meet those needs. This is what Jesus did. And he's giving these disciples, he's giving these apostles the ability to exercise compassion, to relieve people of the captivity of Satan and his demons through his word. We have that. Think about this. Just one more thought on this. You and I, according to Ephesians 2, 2, were captive to the one who works in the sons of disobedience. I mean, to be perfectly blunt, you know this if you've studied the Bible, you belong to God or you belong to Satan, one of the two. There's a lot of people in the world who don't like to hear that. Oh, oh, you just threw me in with Satan. 
Well, I didn't throw you into anywhere. I used to be there. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And so uh, what I'm trying to encourage you is the word of God is what released you. Paul says, we also once were. Over and over he uses those terms, reminding us we were captive. But what released you? Some guy that slapped you in the forehead? No. It is the word of God. It is the word of God that released you. It is the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that released you from his grip. God granting you saving faith so you would believe. And so this finished work of Christ, all through the all-sufficient authority of the word of God, given by the great commissioner, is what we see going out. And brothers and sisters, friends here, Satan can't stop it. He has no authority over whom God saves. He cannot stop that. And you and I, when we want, well, as soon as we get our minds around that the word of God is unstoppable, we stop being so fearful. We, we start saying, oh Lord, I can share that. I can tell, what you, tell someone what you've done for me. Because Satan himself, the, one of the highest created beings in the universe, pales, falls before the word of God. There's no, there's no gifts that are greater than that. There's nothing far greater than those truths. Number two, the great commissioner is our model. Look at eight and nine with me. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except the mere staff. No bread, no bags, no money in their belt. But to wear sandals, and he added, do not put on two tunics. So much here, but I want to tell you that the great commissioner is our model. Think about him. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, as he's speaking with the Father, he says, Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, and you've got to think, who's he talking to? He said, sacrifice and offering you, that's the Father he's talking about, have not desired but a body you prepared for me. He knows what it means to leave all things and go follow the Lord's command. I mean, we, we sing a song that he breathed the air of heaven to breathe the dust of earth. He, he steps out of heaven. He, he veils all who he is. He, his deity and his power and his authority, the shared glory, the shared essence, the shared nature that he has as a, a, a part of the triune God, right? He, he, he veils that in order to step out into our world that he created to rescue you and I. He knows what it means. And I think the great commissioner here is the model. He's modeling this for them. And he trusted in the truth of the sovereign plan the Father had laid down before the foundations of the world. But he understood, right? Do you remember the text in Matthew where he says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have a nest, but the Son of Man, what? Has nowhere to lay his head. What does that mean? Did he not sleep? No, it meant he has nothing. <laughs> he does not have a home or, or anything he could call his own. He was not asking these disciples to do anything that he had not done. He is the great model of this. There are some similarities to the Exodus. Uh, you could go in deeply on this and you know, they were to be prepared, staff in the hand. You know, nothing, just all that they could carry and, and ready to go when the death angel came. But I think here's the point. It takes faith to follow the great commissioner's charge. It takes faith. And I think that's one of the reasons why you and I love our missionaries when we come because they encourage us and we admire them. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's actually good for us. Because many of those 
uh, loved ones, those called ones, they stepped out and said, I'll go to that Muslim country. I'll go to that, that Latin world. I'll, I'll, I'll go to that place and learn that language, learn that culture and share the gospel. It encourages us. But the point is, it takes faith to follow the great commissioner's charge. And I think that's what we must do. So we don't go and share the gospel because we have everything we need. <laughs> oh, there's a point. If God's stirring your heart through this missions month and, and God's pushing you to share the gospel with someone, it's not, you're not going to go, well, I can't share the gospel with my neighbor until I get this, this, and this lined up. The Bible's teaching here is go. Go. I am enough. I am all that you need. Um, we answer the call because we truly believe the truth. That's why we do it. That's why we go. Jesus is instructing his disciples here not to trust in anything, but in his word and his example. So faith alone in the great commissioner, no backup plan. I love that, these verses. There's no backup plan. Don't take, don't take money. Don't take extra tunic. Just go. You first must be committed by faith alone. He'll provide the details. I think that's where it starts. You want to serve the Lord? Want to be involved in a ministry here at Riverbend? Want to express your faith? It, it, step, it starts with a step. Not, not just a step of faith. I, I trust the Lord in this area. And he will provide. He wanted their faith, not their provision. You know, there's a great verse that reminds us of these things. Matthew 6, you know this. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Two very important things. Not our kingdom, and certainly not our own righteousness. And then what does the verse say? And all these things will be added to you. I, I, I've known a lot of missionaries through the years. And I've known some who have died on the mission field. But most of them God provides for. It's hard at times. It's difficult in the ministry as well. The pastors are often uh, don't, not well supplied. I mean, but they go. Because they know God called them. And then just a side note. This is a temporary assignment. Because the Lord's good to people. You know what he says about this in Luke 22? Listen to this. We don't have time to turn there. He said to them, when I sent you out the first time without money belt, no bags, no sandals, that whole thing, you did not lack anything, did you? Here's their response. They said, no, nothing. So Jesus brings them back. This is just before his death. He's charging them again. He says, I sent you out with no money belt, no bags, no sandals, all that kind of stuff. Did you lack anything? They said, no, nothing. But then what does he do? Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 22, 35 through 37. Then he said, but he said to them, now, whoever has a money belt, take it. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword, sell what you need. Sell your coat and buy one. So it's a temporary assignment, and you go, why is he doing that? I, I think the point here is whether you're a pastor, evangelist, a missionary, a faithful Christian, whatever you are here in this group, we must ultimately be dependent on the Lord, that he'll keep his promises, and we love him enough to say, Lord, I'm going to step out. I don't know how this is all going to go. I'm going to walk next door to my neighbor. I'm going to try to build a relationship. I, I don't know how it's going to go, God, but I'm going to trust you. And you start out with a couple of cups of coffee or something in order to engage, and he will do it. One final thought on this point, because hmm, gotta think about the staff. 
middle of middle verse 8. He says, except a mere staff. That's the only thing I wanted to take is a, is a staff. Well, a couple of my thoughts here is the staff is I, was iconic to the prophets, right? One sent by God. So when you study the prophets, often we see them with a staff. We see the Elijahs and Elishas having staffs throughout the Old Testament. It's iconic to them. Um, and so they're sent ones, right? So he's reminding them, this is, this is just to remind you that you're a sent one from God. You're like the prophets of old. You're carrying a message from God to man. And so I think it probably has something to do with that as well. Certainly it was used to walk with and fight off you know, wild animals and things like that. But I also want to think about the symbol of a shepherd. When we think of a shepherd, we think of a staff, don't we? And Jesus is called the great shepherd of our souls. And so when you go out with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you really are someone who is looking for sheep. You really are. I mean, that's, that's our goal, right? Is to find who God is saving, to see who he is opening up. We're carrying a message that only God can open the heart, only God can save. But we're there to, to see the difference between the goat and the sheep and trying to figure out who that is. And God gives us his word. And I think that's what is leading to this great truth that we lean upon. We lean upon it. And I think the staff represents truth in some ways. It's in your hand, right? It's in your hand. And when life is difficult, you lean upon the word of God. Right? You know what he says. You know where he wants you to go. You know, you know how he wants you to live your life. Married and raising children and conducting yourself as a Christian businessman or a Christian woman in the world. Whatever it may be, you know because you lean on it. And I think he's using that. This is just my thoughts. As an example. Lean on it. Protect yourself with it. Protect others with it. The truth is the message that we hold tightly to. And like you hold tightly to a staff, you hold tightly to the word of God. Just some thoughts about the staff. Third, the great commissioner calls for contentment and discernment. The great commissioner calls for contentment and discernment. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Well, through my studies, I've learned in the ancient world that the inns were your last resort. <laughs> Did you realize that saying in the end was your last resort? I read on this quite extensively this week, and they the researchers said that they're unclean and often dangerous. You would be robbed in them. If you did not have family and friends or people who liked you or you were outcast, you often found yourself in an inn. Kind of makes you think a little about Joseph and Mary. Why they ended up outside of an inn. But here the great commissioner wants his disciples to be content. I think that's the message here. When Christ provided lodging for them, they were to stay there, right? The master was going to endow the disciples with temporary power to heal and cast out demons. And do you not think that might bring some fame? <laughs> and do you not think that that might work to some better accommodations? <laughs> Ooh, the disciples are in and they've done this for us. Let's get them up to more of a higher place to live, right? There's a temptation there. So I think the Lord was teaching them 
to be content. Pastor Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, listen to this, but godliness actually is a mean for great gains when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it. If we have food and covering, with these we should be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation. This could be a temptation for the disciples, right? Can you imagine walking up and saying, demon, come out of you, and it actually happens? I mean, people are like, whoa, let's get close to that guy. So he writes to Timothy, look, many fall into the temptation and the snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Just watch the documentary on, uh, oh man, their names, Tammy and whatever they were. Uh, you know, the big, yeah, bakers. Oh my goodness. False gospel. <laughs> uh, so many things. Uncountable millions of dollars. And the destruction that came with it. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I think he's warning them. I send you to a house, stay there. I want you there. Finish the ministry there. Do not walk away from it. Brothers and sisters, ministry is costly. It's loss of income at times. Many of our missionaries have no retirement. Many pastors have no retirement. They've poured everything they have into the ministry. They don't always have it. Loss of friends. You want to lose a lot of friends? Get in ministry. No one wants to be next to you. (laughs) <laughs> at times, am I right? They just kind of this, whoosh. friends get scarce at times. Want to lose your reputation? You're an easy target in ministry. You can't, you shouldn't, and, and, and by all means, often we don't defend ourselves. You're, you can lose your reputation when you didn't do anything wrong at times. You want to go through struggles with family when you have to stand with, against your own family and say, no, I love you, but the Bible says this, I can't compromise, I got to stand because I love the Lord. You can lose family. He's warning them of these things. And Paul said, remember Paul's word, that he learned to be content in all circumstances. And here Jesus is teaching his disciples, be content. However, without contentment, excuse me, with contentment comes discernment. Verse 11 says, if, if any place does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet and testimony against them. Shaking the soles, the dust off the soles of your feet was a, was a Jewish thing. It was brought up this way. It was a way to express contempt towards Gentiles. In fact, it even went farther than that as legalism take, took root, particularly during the silent years between the Old Testament and New Testament. They used this to say symbolically, we're leaving an unclean and contaminated people. <laughs> But Jesus always does better with this. Jesus says to disciples, if the Jews reject my gospel message, if they refuse to repent, shake the dust off because judgment's coming. Isn't that true, though? I don't think we walk around going, you know, clicking our heels, you know, because we witnessed somebody and they said, yeah, sorry, I don't believe. I don't think that's our job. But think about, if the gospel's rejected, If the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one way to the Father, is rejected, they are left with judgment. 
And so he's reminding them that they have held to their self-righteous ways. And in the end, if they don't receive what God had given, that they will fall under judgment. And so there is great discernment he was telling the disciples have. First, be content where I send you. Have discernment. Paul had to deal with this. David Wooten talked about this a little bit last week. I won't go into Acts chapter 13. Right at the end, um, Paul and Barnabas and probably a few others had made their way into Poseidon. Antioch, and there they were persecuted greatly. And it says right at the end of Acts chapter 13, but they shook the dust off their feet and protests against them and went on to Iconium. And listen to them. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and Holy Spirit. What a contrast. The people who held on to religious works and self-righteousness, they're angry and ran them out. Paul and Barnabas go, well, click the hills. And they're full of joy, you know, because they knew. They knew what they had. And I don't think it was a, uh, an act of uh, self-righteousness in their way. They're just realizing, wow, these people are rejecting the king. And the king will judge them someday. And so they moved out. The point of this, God gives wisdom and discernment. When to go, when to stay, when to leave. And if the gospel is resisted through self-righteous works then over time, the Lord will move you into a place. If theology is unimportant, uh, Hayward made a great statement, theology drives our worship today. Theology drives your life. We hear this all the time, churches go, you know, we don't want to get into theology because it runs people off. Our lives are dictated by our theology. (laughs) Our marriages are dictated by theology. Our parenting, our lives, our businesses, all is dictated by what you believe in God. Theology, the study of God. When that's rejected, when theology is no longer important, God will probably move you somewhere where you can build that. If discipleship is disregarded, Jesus told them, go make disciples. If discipleship is disregarded, it's not valued, it's time to probably move. God will move you. If worship is heartless and and outward, it's probably a rejection of God. If the church is pushed around and not cared for. It's Christ's bride. He never abandons his bride, and why would we? We stay with the bride. We're his bride. If that is disregarded, if the church is disregarded, God may move you on. Jesus himself said, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw throw your pearls before swines, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. That's the gospel. You know what he's talking about in that? He's talking about the gospel. That's the pearl. (laughs) That's what we care for. A correlating verse, just to close out this point, Hebrews 10, 29. How much severe punishment do you think he deserves who trampled under the foot of the Son of God? Wow. So there are times our missionaries come and say, man, I think it's time to go. We, we weren't able to reach the word of God. The son of God has been trampled on. But it takes great discernment. Discernment comes out of contentment. Are you content where God has you? Are you content with who God's given you? Are you content with your ministry? If you are not, you will use poor discernment. Contentment is a key. Fourth and last, the great commissioner calls for repentance. Look at verse 12 and 13. They went out and preached that men should repent. 
Wow. And they were casting out demons and anointing oil with many sick and healing them. Well, first of all, they went, right? It says they went out. Those, these, the, though, though these dis- disciples who were extremely unpolished and they were not no, well, you know, well known, they weren't the elite, they went out. Isn't that cool? You feel unpolished in your presentation of the gospel maybe? God's still sending you. He'll help you. Hey, take growing in Christ, uh, get in a partners, get more discipled, get to DTP, get to those resources that we have here to help disciple you. Those are all, those are all good and well. They'll help you. But in the end, you've got to go, I'm taking the step. I'm going to build a relationship with my neighbor. It, it might take a little while. There's been some difficulties. My dog's done things in his yard I wish he wouldn't have. But I, I'm going to go and ask forgiveness, and I, I'm, I'm going to build a relationship Right? Business, business associates, men and women, I'm going to build relationship. Like Bobby was talking about, looking for opportunity, for gospel opportunities with those people. People are hurting. Their marriages are a mess. Their finances are a mess. Their lives are a mess. Their children are a mess. They're hurting. You have the answer. You have the answer. And I love this little phrase, they went out. They went And this is encouraging to us. You can carry the gospel. Notice they preach that men should repent. What a great phrase. When you think about somebody preaching repentance, you might think of maybe the guy down at the racetrack on a speaker. You're all going to hell. And I'm pushing you. you I, I mean, sometimes we think of that when you think about repentance. Let me tell you what this. That's not the message. The repentance, both Greek and Hebrew words, all talk about a change in direction in your life. Now think about this. Changing from the direction of hell to heaven? Is there no greater change of direction a man, a woman, a child could ever have than eternal destiny away from God under his judgment for all of eternity to the glories of being in his person forever and ever and ever and ever? It is a great message. They went out and preached that men should repent. That's what we do. And so you must bring up sin. We have to tell them about our sin and help them see theirs. Faith will bring about this repentance. Believe me, it does. I wrote in my notes, the true product of genuine faith is repentance. God will grant them the faith to believe. They'll repent. You carry the message. But repentance, don't be afraid of this word. Change of direction. It rejects self-righteousness. And repentance is an essential and, listen to this, indispensable element of the gospel message. It's restorative, right? Repentance is what restores us to a right relationship with God. I don't have a relationship with God. I'm alien to him, the Bible says, before salvation. I am by nature a child of wrath, meaning God's wrath is on me. I have no relationship, no matter how good I am society, how much I give to united ways of the world, I am alienated from God. Repentance changes that direction. And we preach repentance. See sin, identify it, and turn from it. Realize that that costs Jesus Christ his death. Paul, as he challenged the elders from Ephesus, he says, I've been solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God. 
in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, this is all I'm doing. As he brings a report, he goes, this is what I'm doing. I'm challenging, I'm asking both Jews and Greeks to repent towards God. Why? Because sin is an offense towards God. And so we repent. And that's the message we have, brothers and sisters, is the message of repentance. And so you can be a missionary on, on Elm Court, you know, in Volusia County. Or you can go overseas, or you can go on short term. But anywhere we go, our message has to be repentance. Eventually, we get to that terminology, repentance. But think about repentance in a believer's life. I think it's super cool. Think about this. Repentance restores joy in our love for Christ more than our love for sin. You got sin in your life? You got sin dominating you, telling you what to do. You can't beat it. Repent. You've lost your joy, friend. You want your joy back? Be like David. Repent. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, he says, in this great psalm of repentance in Psalms 51. You want your joy back? Repent, brother. So repentance is for us as well, right? You want repentance in marriage? You want joy back in marriage? Repent. How about parenting or poor testimony or lack of contentment? Repent. Uh, brother, you're, I'm preaching to me too. Uh, when I look at where my joy goes some days, i got to repent. We don't lose our salvation. You lose your what? You lose your joy. So we preach a message of repentance not only for salvation. We preach a message of repentance for us who believe. Question. Where do you need a change of direction? Where do you need a change of direction? And then finally, verse 13. They were casting out demons and were anointing, anointing with oil with many of the sick and healing them. And what a, we've already marked this before, but the scriptures were not completed this time. So the Spirit's empowering these disciples with great authority to draw attention to the gospel message but now, brothers and sisters, the Spirit has empowered the completed Scriptures for bringing healing and freedom. Use your Bible. Know your Bible. Be discipled in the Bible. Nothing can stand against it. And as I close and we move to communion, Christ's goal from this proclamation, this sending out of these 12 and for us, is the gospel. You are an ambassador now. You're an ambassador. And we've, we've been in missions as Riverbend to all these countries that are represented here. It's pretty impressive. And I thank the Lord that God used Riverbend through the years. But mission starts at home. Can't go overseas until you handle the text here. God is calling. Listen to this last verse. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore we are ambassadors, representatives, for Christ. Now listen to this phrase. Please listen with all your heart. As though God were making an appeal through us. What a statement. And we believe, we, we believe in the sovereignty of God here. We preach it freely. It warms our heart. Causes us to worship. But we also believe he is appealing through us. That's part of his sovereign process. When's the last time you knew God appealed through you to somebody else? Maybe that's a prayer this week. Write it down. God, will you appeal to somebody's soul through me? When we start at missions out, I ask you to write some names down. 
and then some blanks where somebody else would come along. And Paul finishes off this verse. He says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Is he appealing through you? Are you the missionary on your street at your job? If you've been saved, you are. You've been commissioned by the great commissioner. You're a cricket stick. You are. Trust me, I can see you. I know you because I know me. But you can draw a straight line. God can do that. That's what he does with us. Amen? Father, we are so grateful for this message and word of God. We're thankful for Missions Month. It recalculates, recalibrates us, Lord, in a sense. You know, Lord, life is hard on us humans here. We get caught up in things we should not. And we struggle at times, Lord. We struggle to put you first in our lives and, our, and, and the effects are in our marriage and our children and our businesses, our finances. And Lord, it just, we make a mess of things at times. And so, Lord, before we can teach repentance, we often need to repent. And we pray that even now, even as we move into the Lord's table, that you would remind us that we are, are not but a prayer away from you. And we can have a restorative relationship. You do forgive sins. And you have forgiven ours, Lord, so we pray that you would do that. But, Father, as we, as we transition now, may we not forget what you've called us to do. We are to go. We are to go and make disciples. Cause us, Lord, to be a disciple-making church, Lord. We beg you for that, Lord. Strip us down, do whatever you need to do to us, Lord, but get us to be that church, Lord, in every area, so that whenever there is a job to do, both locally and globally, you will reach for Riverbend Community Church to accomplish that, Lord. We want to do that for your glory, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.